It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Michael Nick. Michael's a principal at Technology Finance Partners, founder of ROI for Sales, and a best-selling author, including his newest book, Adapt or Fail, Process with Power. You know, we all know the way sales is happening is changing. It's not only the way you sell, it's also the way customers buy. And it's not just about the fact that your prospects can learn so much more about you from your website and social profiles. No, it's more about that. I mean, that's more than that. The process of gathering and evaluating information and making decisions about products and services is evolving. And sales reps need to change with it. And my guest today, Michael Nick, has written a new book about these changes. And he's going to help you understand what it takes to adapt to these new changes in real time to succeed in sales. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, take a minute. Fill in my introduction. Tell us about yourself. How would you get your start in sales? Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's see. I'm really old, so you're giving away my age. <laughs> well, we could have a contest about that. I started by selling newspapers. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, really. That's going a little back, a little bit too far. Hey, I started with um, women's shoes at JCPenney's. Yeah. Out of college, I was going to be a lawyer, and I had studied uh, my undergrad, my master's, uh, with the intent of becoming a lawyer. And on my way to law school, I stopped in Arizona and... Uh, started working the summer for a company doing demos. I was a demo jock for a company selling construction accounting software. Hmm. So I got to know that field pretty well. And I couldn't understand why I was doing all the work and the salesmen were making all the money. <laughs> Isn't it always <laughs> the case? Compute. Right. <laughs> so I made the big switch, went into sales, made a lot of money, and did very well. Uh, I think my first year or two, uh, I did like any young 23-year-old would do, is I went out and bought a Rolex and a cool car and beautiful Italian shoes and did stupid things with my money and uh, worked my way up to um, one of the top sales guys in the organization. I worked for Timberline at the time. Oh, I, I sold a bunch of Timberline stuff when I worked for Burroughs. Yeah, and then Burroughs bought them. <laughs> yeah. And when that happened, I got recruited by a company out of Wisconsin, and I moved to Wisconsin and Eventually, I worked my way up to the VP of Worldwide Sales and Marketing, and I took that company from about, when I started, they were about a million, million and a half, and when I left, they were about 30 million. And when I left the company, I started ROI for Sales, and it was really by accident. Uh, I was working with Great Plains, mm -hmm. and I was hired to do an interesting project for them. They were trying to... Uh, they were trying to qualify service calls so that they had the best service in the world. And, and they did this so that they were able to kind of triage it before it got to the actual person at Great Plains. And I was in Atlanta working with their, their biggest distributor. And we came across this idea of using math uh, to validate. You know, and, and it was a simple calculation. It was something simple like, let's see, if, we're, if a serviceman calls in and wants to send out one part, how much does that cost? If the service guy calls three times a day and each time he orders a part, every time we order the part, they've been packaging it and sending it one at a time, mm -hmm. it'd be cheaper to do it together. And all of a sudden, we looked at each other like an epiphany and said, well, why don't we put this stuff together? I mean, why doesn't software figure this out? And so we figured out a whole bunch of things in the service area that that would work for. And I went back to Great Plains and said, tell you what, I'll build you this 
at the time I didn't know what it was, but an ROI model for free if I can keep the intellectual property because working for them, they technically would have owned it. Sure. So I went out, I copywrote it, sent it to the Library of Congress, started writing uh, ROI selling, and then I sold the concept to HP, and that was the beginning of ROI for sales about 20 years ago. And since then, we've done about 180 models and uh, grew the company. And then about a year and a half ago, I sold it to a company called Technology Finance Partners. And uh, their business is rooted in vendor finance programs, but they have a consulting and services group that three or four of us work together. And we do training and we do uh, ROI models. We do field support. We do uh, all sorts of cool stuff for the sales world. And at the same time, they allow me to continue to write and speak and Things like that. All right. Well, very interesting. We'll have to talk <laughs> offline about our, our shared uh, background. Maybe we crossed path at some time back in the I'm day. Sure. So I'm sure we know people in common. So let's let's talk about your latest book, Adapt or Fail. What very interesting premise here. What was the impetus to write this book? Uh, good question. And, and and I I find this interesting. That well, first of all, I have two millennial children. And one of them is big in business. She spent a, uh, some time in Europe. She's working at Northern Trust. Um, really smart kid. But still, she's a millennial. Mm -hmm. And so we get into these discussions about millennials. And it dawned on me that, you know, as millennials begin to move into positions of power, I mean, by the year 2020, they'll be 70% plus of the workforce. And by 2022, they will have more buying power than baby boomers. So think about that. So in the next five to six years, as a sales professional, you need to figure out how to deal with millennials. And they just, I mean, you know, again, I'll show my age. They're just not normal. I mean, they're the only <laughs> generation that has grown up with technology, which is interesting in itself. I mean, you see two, three, four-year-olds playing with an iPhone and they do it better than we do, you and I. And so I, I was intrigued with the concept of as these, as these millennials move into these power positions, how do you deal with them? You can't deal with them in traditional ways. And so I, I overlaid that on my idea that the future of sales is going to change as it does about every decade and a half, about every 15 years. And so I overlaid the concept with what I call the past, the present, and uh, the problem. And the problem is there are several issues that you're going to have to deal with as a sales professional in the future. You have to deal with the C-suite, which we do now, but it's going to get more intense. You have to provide financial validation and justification. That's a fact. It's just a fact of, 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 that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen more and more in the future. They want this. Statistics prove that out. Um, you have to be able to articulate your value. This I find very interesting because, again, millennials think differently. They are, by definition, the most collaborative of all generations, because they're, I mean, they can be in the back seat, three millennials, and they're texting each other rather than talking. I mean, that, yes. that's just strange, but, and again, not normal. <laughs> well, and then you also have to produce for those millennials listening, we're, for those millennials listening, you're, you are normal, just you have a different way of doing things. <laughs> it's true. It's kind of like the 50s thought of the 60s and the 60s thought of the 70s. And, the, you know, it's every generation thinks their generation is the generation. So, right. And I so, well, but, but a question for you that, yeah. that sprung to mind as, as I was, you know, listening to you talk and also reviewing your materials is that. Okay, so 70% of the workforce is going to be millennials, is by the time this really takes hold, I mean, it's really millennials selling to millennials at that point. So, uh, so, so even though I know that the book somewhat is a cautionary tale for those of us who, who aren't millennials, yeah. but by and large, at that point, isn't it going to be millennials selling to millennials? And, and 
do they not understand how to sell to themselves or, you know, it's just interesting <laughs> it, question for you. It's really, it's really not. Um, think of the generation that ran between baby boomers and millennials. We're forgetting about the Gen Xers. And they never let you forget it. Exactly. And so this book is really targeted for Gen Xers selling to millennials and millennials selling to millennials. And what it is, is it's a foundation for things you need to do today to be prepared to be selling in the really the short term and the long term as well. But there are techniques. There are dozens and dozens of techniques that you can start right now to make yourself a better salesperson, more informed, uh, better at what you do. It's 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 well, kind of like the next step into that, sales well, bible. So what are what okay, next gen sales bible, what's what's the first commandment? Well, the first thing you need to do is do your research and I know people say, "Oh, well, we've been t- we've been told this for years and years and years." But there are techniques to do that research. So, for example, if you sell uh, something that reduces inventory carrying costs, for example. Maybe your software sells an inventory management module or something. Where to go and where to look for on a financial statement to see what a company is doing with their inventory, whether it's growing or not growing, whether they're paying too much in carrying cost, whether they're not. How to read and interpret a financial statement, for example. There's, there's 20 pages or more on just understanding financial statements and how to dig information out of those financial statements. Yeah, I mean, it's a great example because I think that Right now, if you tell a salesperson, look, you need to go research the company and the prospect, what they're doing is they're going to go on their LinkedIn profile and look at the person they're talking to. You know, it's very superficial. So, exactly. So, one of the, yeah, definitely one of the things that research is showing into buyers is that buyers expect more business acumen from sellers. And there's a huge gap now between that expectation and the reality, right? I mean, you've seen the studies, I'm sure, as you research your book, is that uh, 80% plus of C-suite executives think that there's no value. They get no value from their meetings with salespeople. Yeah, I saw that statistic. I think that was a Forrester research stat. Right. It was 80 plus per, yeah, yeah, I saw that. And which really, you just you just make my point of what the baseline of the book is, is that the first thing, the absolute first thing you need to do is to define and understand your value proposition. And we give you an exercise in there called a value inventory. Uh, it's a workshop that we offer, but it's something you can do on your own as well. As a it's sales a personal, sales personal value inventory, personal value yeah. proposition, right? Okay. Yes, Just to exactly. be clear for the listeners. Yeah. And it's, and it's really important that you understand why people buy from you from their eyes. So you have to look at the buyer from the buyer's eyes into, why do I need this? Why do I want this? What's the value in what you deliver? And, and there are a series of questions that walk you through coming up with eight or ten really key reasons people buy from you, what your competitive advantage is, how that person, that buyer would rank them, who the stakeholder is. And then there's another section completely on buyer personas. It's understanding your buyer and what motivates them to buy, how they're compensated. And so I really dig deep into the foundation as well as the techniques to help you like, for example, reading a financial statement or creating a value uh, hypothesis or building a business case. So it's a really end-to-end book that should help you sell today, tomorrow, and you know, deep into the future with millennials. Yeah, and I, I mean, it obviously it, it's a great point about uh, the value inventory because, as you know, I mean, in today's world, the first line of differentiation is the salesperson, not the company or the product. That's true. I mean, if you want to be able to get your foot in the door, start building rapport and trust, it's it's on you. And 
yeah, if they sense from the beginning that you are too superficial in your understanding of their needs, if you come in and talk about yourself versus them, asking good questions, then, yeah, that first impression really sets you back. You're at a competitive disadvantage from the get-go. Right. You make a really good point when you quoted the Forrester statistic. I took it one step further and said, look, it's one thing to understand your value proposition, and it's another thing to understand the issues, pains, and goals that your customers are having. But the key is to link them. The key is to say, if this problem exists, here's what my value proposition is. Here how, here's how I can fix your problem. And then I take it another step and say, here's what the impact's going to be on your financial health. So we, we link it almost three steps. What's mm-hmm. your problem? What's the solution? And then how I can impact your financial health and where to find that impact as well. Right. So, and it really speaks to the hiring of the salespeople. So this is a, you know, a, an area where there's always a lot of, a lot of contention, especially when I write about it, because I'm, I'm fairly strong in my opinions, is, you know, I believe you hire specialists, not generalists, mm-hmm. that increasingly... And the world that you're describing, which is the world I believe is, is already here, but is going to evolve even further, is if you want to be a sales successful in sales, is, yeah, you have to be able to deliver this value to the prospect and be able to do that. You need this business acumen. To develop this business acumen, it's not just general business acumen. You need to have those people have more well-developed expertise in their specific customer's field of endeavor have an advantage. It, exactly. Exactly. And, so why and, is there such pushback about that? Why do people say, oh, no, I want to hire the best available athlete? And I'm like, seriously? I mean, I, I, the, the pushback, I mean, because I, I talk about this and, and end up writing a, a blog post in response to somebody that really pushed back strong on about it. As I said, you know, I've never had a customer, when I was managing sales, I never had a customer pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, you know, Andy, uh, we really like you. We like your company, your product. But, you know, John who's here selling to me, he's just not salesy enough. <laughs> right? Never had that happen. No. Right? <laughs> Nor I. <laughs> and it's never, I called it the question your customer is never going to ask you. <laughs> you know, yeah. Please send over somebody more. But yeah, I've had the opposite happen. We're saying, look, your guy just doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. You know, he's not helping me at all. So why is that? Why should that be so still so contentious? It seems like specialist is where you want to go. And this idea about, you know, innate sales skills that generalists have and building relationships is just. It's crap as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, one of the things that um, that I think is really difficult for both baby boomers and Gen Xers to understand about millennials is their view of the world. They, as cer- certainly as a sales professional, sales manager, president, buyer, purchasing agent, whatever they might be in this world, they still have or they still have, they have a view of the world that says, I want to make a difference. I want to, I want, I want a salesman to come to me or a sales professional to come to me with, with a proposal for how they're going to impact my company, but how they're going to impact my entire company and the world around my company. So they're looking at things like uh, environmental impact. They're looking at things like I, I mean it's it, I, I can't call it crazy. I have to call it that they have this different view of the world than, than we do. You know, we grew up polluting. We grew up doing all these crazy things. Well, the millennials are not doing that. They're looking at this saying, if I buy you, this is the impact on this department, but it's also the impact on this organization. And, and when you sell to a millennial now and in the future, you need to have a bigger view of what they think is important to them. 
So when you do buyer personas, it's important to understand what's important to that organization beyond that department that you're selling to. It just goes deeper. And you have to be like an onion. You have to be multi-layered and have that ability to communicate at that level. And, and I think, again, this kind of goes back to where you're talking about how you hire a specialist versus a, uh, a generalist. And, and if, if you read the book end to end, and I couldn't tell you where it's at, but I make the same point you do, that the world is turning to specialists because of that reason. So I, 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 we are com- completely on the same page in that topic. Violent agreement. Good. All right. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with my guest, Michael Nick. We're going to talk more about changes that are happening in the, in the workforce that impact how you sell to decision makers. And uh, based on his new book, Adapt or Fail, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. All right, welcome back with my guest today, Michael Nick and... Um, yeah, interesting point you brought up that, so, um, you're talking about sort of the economic validation of the purchase becomes more, more important, but hasn't it always been important? Well, I think it has from a, from a superficial view. I think that we, I think that millennials believe it and that they are committed to it much more so than any other generation that I can ever remember. But you don't think the people you were selling to, I mean, because it's interesting, you brought that up and I had seen it as I was preparing for this interview. It's like, mm-hmm. interesting. It's, it's, I mean, I remember <laughs> days I was selling, hey, selling to construction companies with Timberline software. Yeah. You know, they weren't buying on faith. They were, they were making a pretty detailed economic assessment and of the, the investment and what the payback was going to be. Yes. So, but you think that's change has become even, that they didn't go far enough and now people are going further in this assessment? I do. I do. I think, and and you gave a great example as a construction company or heavy highway guys or something like that. You you know, they want to control costs and they want to uh, have better reporting and they want one view of the world. and, and, And there are many, many reasons technically why they want to buy from you. The millennial will look at not only that, but they will look beyond that and say, what will the impact be not only on project management, but what is the impact going to be on accounting? What's the impact going to be on um, on the guy in the street, the project managers, the secretaries, the, you know, they are more collaborative. They are more holistic than, than, than any other generation has ever been in their buying patterns. And construction is, is one of the better examples of that because it's so broad and so deep. I mean, you don't just put in a project management system without affecting it depends on the size of the organization, but dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and thousands of people. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're econ, you know, you're talking about a thousand plus project managers they have that it would have an impact on. Okay. I just think they do it deeper. And I think that as a sales professional, your research needs to go deeper. You need to look at organizations and say, what are they supporting? 
what are their charitable contributions? Go go deeper than the financials. Go deeper than uh, a LinkedIn search, an advanced LinkedIn search, which we teach you how to do as well. And, and get into understanding the persona. Get, get into understanding the organization's goals. Go listen to the MD&A. Go, when, when they do their quarterly call, listen in. I mean, there's so much knowledge that you can gain from that exercise. All right. And some people just don't do that today. Yeah. So, I mean, all right. So, here's, here's some do. But some do. Right. So, here's a question it is certainly one that's, you know, people that are regular listeners to the show will know that's sort of, you know, soapbox I get up onto is, yeah, sort of this lack of curiosity among sales to mm-hmm. continue to develop their own skill set, their own knowledge, you know, uh, a tendency to sort of wait for the company to, to train them as opposed to being out aggressively reading books like yours on their own or, or so on. So how, how's, does that change with millennials in your mind? Are they more curious? Are they more likely to continue to invest in their own development? Oh, I believe so. I absolutely believe so. I think that that the training industry is a $30 billion industry that's going to grow dramatically over the next 10 years. And I think that the training that's going to be offered is more specialized training like we do. I mean, we do training on financial acumen. We do training on specific negotiation that's, that's to your, you know, how your organization responds. Everything's custom. I think that the, the SPIs and the Miller-Hymans of the world, they're going to have great years going forward. But unless... And if they don't change their their the way they teach and to modernize their material, they will fail. And I, I can already see it happening. Sandler has done giant steps in their in their changes. SPI with their three year, you can have every access to our entire material. Great stuff. You know, a lot of these organizations you see changing dramatically to accommodate that. But I mean, as a it's an industry that's going to grow rapidly. I truly, truly think so. All right. So one of the things you talk about is millennials making decisions. Differently, and so I, I sort of curious about that because, uh-huh. you know, our 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 brains are wired all the same. Yeah. I mean, there's six. I mean, since World War II, there's been incredible research into how people make decisions. And multiple Nobel prizes handed out to people, Herbert yeah. Simon and others, about how people make decisions. Yeah. I'll pick mine up in a few weeks. Okay, but <laughs> I'll nominate you. So, so how could it really be different? Well, oh gosh. Uh, I mean, just are, right are, the, the, are the brains wired differently? Is, I mean, is that that's why, that's why I'm really curious about you know that whole comment because I said this, you know, people are people. Yeah, they are. Let me let me ask you something, and and it might be rhetorical, it might not be, but when we were selling, when we were younger in our 20s and 30s, selling mm-hmm. Timberline software, we could identify the decision maker, couldn't we? Sure. Yes. We could identify the process, couldn't we? Yeah, most times. Pretty much, you know, Marge is going to look at it, Frank's going to approve it, and John's going to sign the check. I mean, it was that simple. I mean, life was simple. And I give you charts and graphs and, and, and cool little diagrams to show you how simple life used to be. And then I show you the more complex model as things became more important to people like mitigation of risk and, and budgeting and so forth. So millennials in general and by uh, design, I guess, are the most collaborative generation ever. No one decision maker will ever make a decision in a millennial company. It will come from groups. It will come from a collaborative effort. Everyone has an opinion. Every opinion is, is, is uh, uh, valued. And it's difficult as a sales professional because you can't challenge a single opinion. You have, to, you have to deal with a group on a group basis. And it takes a lot of skill and a lot of uh, tons of knowledge to deal with that. And so, 
yes, the, the way people make decisions is changing and it's going to change dramatically going forward because of that generation's collaborative genesis. I mean, they, they really are. Like I said, three teenagers in the back of a car texting each other. It doesn't even make sense to me. <laughs> well, and so I just wonder, though, how different, let's say you're selling a large, complex solution to an enterprise. Sure. I mean, I sold large, multi-million dollar complex communication systems to the biggest companies in the world for yeah. a number of years. Yeah, that environment's pretty much the same as, as I was dealing with. You know, there's no one person making the decision. They were collaborative across the enterprise. Um, it didn't. Yeah, but ultimately one person was, and the collaboration didn't extend as far as it will today. Just take something simple like, as I said, three teenagers in the back seat. Ask them where they want to have lunch. I mean, it, it's a five, ten minute discussion. It's not, let's go to Arby's, let's go to you know, Subway or whatever it might be. It's a different kind of a discussion than we would have had when we were teenagers or the Gen Xers were teenagers. And, and, and in their case, in the case that you brought up with selling multinationals and so forth, yeah, you had to have some other departments involved in it, but not as a holistic organization. I mean, if you sell to AT&T, look at how diverse they are now. You know, knowing AT&T's future plans, knowing AT&T's uh, charitable efforts, knowing AT&T's structure, um, it's, it's, it's a lot different. And again, as, you, as millennials move into these positions where they have to make, uh, where they're going to be the decision makers ultimately, or they're going to hold the budgets, uh, it's going to change. They're going to run differently than people do today. So one last area to delve into before we go to the last segment of the show is... Sure. You talk about focusing your sales effort on the deals you can win, yes. which, you know, there's a certain logic to that that's irrefutable. Um, why is that different? Again, there's another, you know, for people hearing this, listening to that, okay, it seems like, gosh, that's always been our mandate. Yeah. But it's never really been the case, though, right? Because we all see pipelines that are full of, full of junk. Sure. So what are you talking about there? What I'm specifically talking about is if you follow a pattern that I lay out, a, a, um, if you follow and use the techniques that I've designed and, I've, and, I've, and I'm, and I'm uh, talking about in the book, then what will happen is, is that you will get out of bad deals sooner. Because here's the problem. You're right. You see pipelines filled with all kinds of junk. And we're all investing money in that junk. And we're losing money because we come in second, third, or we're not even considered. We may be column fodder or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that if you do the if, if, if you do your research and you have good discovery skills, then if your questions come from your value inventory, if your questions are specific and, um, and they give you the ability to monetize value and calculate status quo for an organization, you'll have that tipping point conversation early and you'll know whether a prospect is real or not. And I not only teach the salesman how to do it, I teach managers how to manage it. And that's what's important is that your sales force can't run awry. You have to have the ability to look at a forecast in, in this case and say, that's crap. That's not going to fly. There's no way on earth you're going to get this. And if you do, you know, it's, a, it's luck. I mean, and, and everybody has luck every once in a while. So, sure. you know, blind squirrel finds a nut, as they'd say. But I think that, that the techniques will help you get out sooner and so that you'll understand what's, uh, what's good and what's bad business. You know, I think it's it is I think disqualifying is is a key skill. Yeah, and I agree. And it's one that's really hard, especially in certain sales environments where they're so focused on quantity of activities that 
you know, it's a real conundrum for sometimes for managers that have incentives built on quantities as opposed to quality of their pipeline. Right. Very few sales books look at it from a manager's view also. I mean, they tell, they, they teach salespeople how to sell better, how to do better discovery, how to create better questions, how to negotiate better, how to do all these things. But rarely do you see a book that says, salesman, here's what you should be thinking about. Manager, here's what you should be thinking about. And there are places in the book where I call that out. Excellent. Well, good. Well, that book is Adapt or Fail, and we're going to give you a chance in a few minutes to tell people where to find out more about it. But in the meantime, now we're going to the last segment of the show. Got some standard questions to ask all my guests, and the first one is a hypothetical scenario that you're the star of. You've just been hired as a new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out, and they want to get unstuck, and the CEO is really anxious for this to happen. So what two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Fire the sales force. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the first thing I would do is, of course, interview the salespeople to find out what's going on. If they understand their value, have they? I mean, I, I've got a series of things I would ask, a series of questions I would ask from a manager's viewpoint as to what's the current state, what's going on, what's happening. That's the first thing I would do. Mm -hmm. And then in my case, the second thing I would do is I would go back to the product marketing or product management and I would ask the state of the product. And I, I want to know that the product is solid, that it's quality, that it has opportunity, that there's happy customers. Um, and I would be contacting customers as well. I mean, that giving me a third option That's, in there. Right. I would time. contact customers as well saying, I'm new, I want to understand what's going on, I want to understand what you're happy about, what you're not happy about, and let you know that things are changing. Okay, good. So now some sort of rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers if you want, or you can elaborate. So the first one is when you, Michael Nick, are out selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Well, in my case, I'm probably more unique because I have four best-selling, well, three best-selling books. <laughs> so that's probably my greatest asset is that I have it, I've done it, um, and I've done it from a guy that works every day selling. I mean, a, a principal at Technology Finance Partners is not somebody that sits around and does paperwork. It's somebody that does business development every day. I make cold calls. I make warm calls. Uh, I call partners. I mean, I'm in the trenches doing So when you talk to somebody, what what what's that first thing they're aware of? Uh, a lot of it's name recognition in my case because people know me from my books and we work out of a pretty large database that we mine a lot. So mm -hmm. um, most people want to talk about books and things like that. So, I mean, that's it just happens. It's All right. The celebrity but in my factor. case, it's, it's probably the fact that I have books and I've had the experience of, of doing all the things that I talk about. All right. Who's your sales role model? Oh, I love David Sandler. I think he was absolute genius. Okay. And I love the Sandler methodology as well. I think it's it's genius. All right. Yeah. So besides your own, one book every salesperson should read. Uh, you can't teach a kid to ride a bike in a seminar by David Sandler. I think everybody on earth ought to read it. It's It covers so much. It's such a great book. Okay. Perfect. And mine. <laughs> and but I said, besides your own, yours we'll take for a given. Um, <laughs> tough question here is is what music's on your playlist right now? Oh, funny. Uh, actually, it's a local uh, a local artist here in in um, Wisconsin. His name is Chuck Lang. Uh, he's a Latin guitarist, <laughs> and he plays everything from the Eagles to the Beatles to uh, you name it. He's just amazing. He's phenomenal. He has four records out or four CDs out. And I right, we'll check that. it out. We'll check the it most, out. 
Yeah, most of the time. All right, last question for you. The one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople is? Um, that's a good question. Uh, what is it? Let me just think to the last few conversations I've had with people. Probably uh, the, the biggest challenge I see and, and I get asked about a lot is how do I open doors when people don't answer? I get a, a gatekeeper, I get mm-hmm. voicemail, I get spammed, I get whatever it is. And I find that it's ironic that's, that VPs of sales want their salespeople to crack into VP of sales and they don't take calls themselves. <laughs> so what's your answer to people? Well, the answer is that you have to use some of the techniques that I talk about in there. For example, you know, you mentioned it, uh, a LinkedIn advanced search. You know, go to the advanced search and see who you know that knows someone and ask for an introduction. Mm-hmm. That's always a good one. Another is using, uh, you know, two-day air and sending materials that people open those packages. You know, they may not open a letter, but they'll open something that looks like a FedEx package or whatever. So, you know, if you have an interesting enough message and interesting enough materials, I mean, I managed a Salesforce for the better part of 15 years, and I had gatekeepers, but people could get to me if they had the right message. I mean, I, you just have to look at inside and say, what would, what would make me want to answer the phone? What would make me want to respond to a sales professional? Okay, great answer. I mean, sales makes the world go round. If everybody stopped selling, yeah, well, what would happen? Yeah. You know, the economy would fall apart, so... All right, I agree. So, well, thank you for being on the show today. My thank guest you. has been Michael Nick. Michael, tell people how they can find out more about you, your book, and your company. Well, they, the publisher set up a website at michaeljnick.com, and there you can read excerpts, read my history. Uh, you can see all my different books. Uh, if you're in China or, or Russia, I have books in China and Russia. And uh, you can order the books from Amazon or from me direct or from Nook, anywhere you want. It's in every format possible. Uh, but michaeljnick.com or, or roiforsales.com will tell you more about what we do. Yeah, and that ROI for the number four. Oh, yes, the number sales. four. Sales. Yes, yeah. Excellent. Okay, well, good. Well, thanks for joining me. Thanks. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make this podcast a part of your daily routine, whether it's on your commute, in the gym, or at your morning sales huddle, because then you'll make sure you don't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Michael Nick who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.